Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4. Yes, our, my daughter and son-in-law are in from Colorado. We actually had all seven grandkids in the house last night. So that was fun. And then our daughter, who is moving to Provo, Utah, but not until the school year is out, she's here. And then my son tagged along. So the last three weeks, we have dealt with the subject of authority. Uh, we talked about submission. We didn't like it. It wasn't any fun. Uh, I mentioned to Tom, my son-in-law, that last week we dealt with wives being subject to your husbands, and he said he had all kinds of questions about that today. I said I would ignore him. <laughs> so we are going to pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, finally all of you. He's been talking about specific groups of people submitting to specific particular people. So we're back to talking to all of us. So he's talking to believers at this point. I think it's interesting that he uses the word finally there. Uh, you know, that's a good preacher technique. You're halfway through the sermon and you say, in conclusion, and everybody knows it's not the conclusion. We are a few verses past the halfway point, but he does say, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So we're going to talk today about what? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So what does it mean to have unity of mind? That's the hard one. We'll skip that one <laughs> for right now. Let's move to sympathy. We're all fans of sympathy, aren't we? Well, we talk about being fans of sympathy, but what is sympathy? Sympathy is relating to the feelings of others. We know that people are hurting and we hurt with them. We know that people are rejoicing and we rejoice with them. That is sympathy. When you get into difficult situations, remember the church that he's writing to is beginning to experience persecution. You have a tendency to kind of draw into yourself and not worry about the problems and issues of other people. You begin to have a lack of sympathy. We as believers are told to be sympathetic to one another, to show concerns for the feelings and the concerns of each other, to be aware of the feelings and concerns of one another, and not necessarily to beat them over the head with it. It's the old discussion about somebody's going through hard times, and our initial thought is to teach them the Bible, and tell them that God works all things together for good, which is a nice way of saying, forget your problems and just get over it. Well, God does work all things together for good. That is a true statement. But when people are going through difficult times, 
we need to show sympathy to them and not use the scripture as a hammer to beat them over the head. Does that make sense? Sometimes we, as Christians, are very quick to offer solutions when what we need to do is to sympathize with people. Now, that isn't to say we don't offer solutions, but we don't offer solutions, once again, as a way to beat them over the head. Uh, Years ago, my mother and I had a discussion about depression. We had had a discussion because I had listened to this pastor talk about depression, a series of lectures that he gave. And she said, yeah, when she grew up, you know, if you told the pastor of the church you were depressed, they would say, it's sin, get over it. (laughs) Well, it might be sin, and you might need to get over it. But it might be a lot of different things. You may be going through hard times, and we as believers are to show sympathy one to another. There's always this unity of mind. Uh, We'll get to that in a moment. Sympathy, brotherly love. Yes, this is the word that we name the city of Philadelphia after, the city of brotherly love. How many of you have ever been to Philadelphia and really think it's the city of brotherly love? (laughs) I don't know. I won't go there. It is interesting to me. We actually talked about this a while back, if you remember. We know that in the scripture, there's a handful of words that are used that we translate love. And we know that the highest form of love is agape love. This is looking out for the good of the beloved, sacrificial love. But since we elevate agape love, sometimes we neglect to remember that the other forms of love are love too. You know, we know eros, which is erotic, where we get that word, which is sexual love, and it's a great thing in its proper context. So they're all useful. So what is the distinction between brotherly love? Well, brotherly love is, once again, looking out for the needs of those around us. Remember, we as a community of believers are a family. We are a family, and when your brother calls you up, you go help them. It's really that simple. You know, your brother calls you in the middle of the night and says, my car's broken down, can you come get me? Your first comment is not, where are you? Your first comment is, I'm on my way, tell me where you are. Because that is brotherly love. Brotherly love is actually looking out for the needs of those around us. That's what good brothers do. Now, you and I are very familiar with real-life human being brothers, and sometimes we have difficulty with them. My brother and I got along much better after we became adults. When we were semi-adults and youngsters, eh, not so much. But family, brothers, sisters, people that are in your family, you help when the need is there. You don't sit there and think, well, it would be inconvenient of me to come help you right now. It would be difficult. I've got something else to do. 
I'm watching my TV show. I don't want to be bothered with you. We are to show brotherly love, which is kindness in action toward those around us. We are to show sympathy. We are to show brotherly love. A tender heart and a humble mind. What in the world is a tender heart? Remember, when the biblical writers are talking about the heart, they're not talking about that organ in your body that pumps blood. They're talking about the center of your being, who you really are, your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now, to discuss a tender heart, we should talk about the opposite of a tender heart. And what is that? You know what this is, right? What? A hard heart. Throughout the scripture, we are warned against being hard-hearted. What does that mean? Well, we've talked about this before in here, and I think it's rather important because we don't want to talk about it. Um, If you remember, God told Moses to go talk to Pharaoh. He was to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And by the way, God told him, he's not going to do it. Now, I don't know about you. If I go into a meeting and I'm already told the answer is no, part of me thinks, why am I going to this meeting? Well, you're doing it because God told you to go. So, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way, not going to happen. And it says... God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God goes, I mean, and Moses goes back, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And it says, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Wait a minute. Who was it? Huh? Who did it the last time? It kind of bounces back and forth. I wouldn't say that it's an even division, but it goes back and forth. Sometimes it's Pharaoh hardening the heart, and sometimes it's God hardening the heart. Which is the answer? You know the answer to this. The answer is yes. (laughs) What does it mean to have a hardened heart? If you go to Romans chapter 1, Remember, it says that we as, well, all of humanity, chose to worship the created thing rather than the creator. While we should have known about God because the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through creation, we chose to worship something else. And it says God gave them over. What does that mean? Well, it means God let them do what they wanted to do. And guess what happened? There's this downward spiral, and they took the next turn around that spiral. And what does it say after that? God gave them over, and they went another loop around that spiral. God has created us with, with certain things that temper, that reduce the amount of sin that we do. 
You think, how could that be? Read the newspaper. There's lots of sin out there. That's true. But there could always be more. And he does that within us as individuals by giving us a conscience. We do something bad, and we know we've done something bad. We know we've done something bad, and we pull back. But sometimes we just ignore the conscience. We ignore the conscience, we tell it no, and the next time that conscience tells us something, we don't hear it as loud. And the next time we hear it even less, and the next time we hear it even less, and eventually we don't hear it at all. Why? Because our heart is hardened. We harden our hearts. God hardens our hearts when we refuse to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit telling us what we ought to do. That is the bad side. But this isn't talking about the bad side. This is talking about the good side. Be tender-hearted. That means that our hearts are sensitive to those around us. We are aware I'm talking with somebody and it dawns on me there's something wrong in their life and they're not telling me. You ever been in that conversation? You're talking about work. You're talking about sports. You're talking about something. And you know, and you just stop and go, what's happening in your life? And you respond to that. It is difficult to show sympathy when you are hard-hearted. When our heart is tender, we are willing, able to see the needs of those around us. Then we can offer sympathy. Then we can offer brotherly love. How do we have a tender heart? By responding to God. The scripture tells us to do certain things. Love your enemies. Maybe that's a bad example. We hate that one. Love our neighbors. We'll go with that one. And our neighbor has a problem, and what do we do? Bye. See ya. Hope it gets better. What does the book of James say? Somebody comes to you with a problem. I need 10 bucks. You have 10 bucks in your pocket. And you say, I'll pray for you. Bye. That's what James says. Pretty loose translation, but that's what it says. If you have the means, you don't have to say, I'll pray for you. You give them the 10 bucks. If they're hungry, you feed them. If they're naked, you clothe them. If they need a roof over their head, you give them a roof over their head. That is being tender-hearted. It was interesting. We were actually talking this morning about the King James Bible there was a guy in this class for years who was a big proponent of the King James Bible. Like, it was the true Bible. And anyway, and he and I used to get into nice <clears throat> arguments about it, to the point that he left for three years. He really did. But he came back and he apologized. I mean, we were friends, okay? We could talk about this. But we and I would have this, you know, discussion bickering, discussion back and forth, and it was interesting. 
But let me tell you something about Van, okay? The guy in charge of the men's ministry calls him up and says, I've got a guy that needs a ride to the airport. I'm on the way. If there was an issue, if there was something that needed to be done, Van did it. So we can have all this other discussion, but the tender heart says, if there's a need, I'm here. I'm here to help. I'm here to meet that need. So we have sympathy. We have brotherly love. We have a tender heart. You do begin to see a connection between all of these, right? They're all connected together. And finally, we get to the last one. <sighs> hmm. A humble mind. The scripture has a lot to say about humility. You cannot read the scripture and not understand that God loves the humble and he hates the prideful. I read an article um, within the last month. It was an editorial. Can you have humility and succeed in the business world? And the answer was no. And it had a long discussion about the fact that humility is viewed by a lot of people as one of the slave virtues. Humility is a sign of you're a nobody and you know you're a nobody. Well, biblically, that's not the definition of humility. But you know what? We want to make sure that people don't think that about us. So we're going to be humble and we're going to be really, really proud about it. In fact, I'm going to beat you over the head with my humility. Just so you know that I'm not doing this because I'm weak. But you know what? Just to pick a random example, Jesus didn't care about that. Our problem is that our pride stands between us and God. I may be able to convince myself that I'm better than you. But the moment I start even having a hint of thinking that I'm better than God, I've gone the wrong direction. But this is talking about a humble mind. What is that? Well, first off, it's acknowledging what you know and what you don't know. I was reading this week about the Dunning-Kroger effect. Any of you know what the Dunning-Kroger effect is? It is the relationship by the fact uh, between the about that the less you know about a subject, the more you think you know about the subject. <laughs> they actually graft people's perception of their knowledge in a particular area and their actual knowledge in that area. And as the actual knowledge goes up, you actually reach a point where you actually know more than you think you know. But for most of us, we think we know a whole lot more about things that we don't have a clue about. Now, is our response not to learn anything? No. Our response is to be humble-minded. 
to acknowledge the fact that, no, I am not the expert on all things. But you know what? I want you to believe that I'm the expert on all things. In fact, I thought it was interesting because I spent a whole, I don't know, 10 minutes reading about the Dunning-Kroger effect. So you think I'm now an expert on it, and I think I'm an expert on it. Guess what? I know 10 minutes worth about, yeah. Humble-mindedness is not thinking too highly of yourself. I quoted G.K. Chesterton last week, so I might as well do it again this week. He says that pride is not, no, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It isn't spending all your time bashing yourself. Oh, I'm just not very good. Generally, when we take that attitude, we want somebody else to say what? Oh, you're really great. It's a technique, it's a tool to get you to compliment me. What it really means is to just not spend all your time thinking about yourself. You ready for this? We are to demonstrate sympathy. What is sympathy? Being aware of the feelings of others. Guess what? If I'm thinking about myself, I don't give a flip about your feelings. Showing brotherly love to one another. That is meeting the needs of each other. You know what? If I'm thinking about myself, your needs are the last of my concern. What was the next one? Come on. Huh? Tender-hearted. What is the essence of a hard heart? I'm not paying attention to you at all. Humility of mind does not say that I'm stupid. It just means that I'm not concerned all the time with me and what you're thinking about me. I, I'm just not. Now, let's go back to the beginning. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. What does it mean? Well, let me give you the answer, and then I'll tell you what it doesn't mean, okay? You know what it means? Be unified in your desire to show sympathy for each other. Be unified in your desire to show brotherly love for each other. Be unified in your desire to have a tender heart. Be unified in your desire to live humbly before the Lord. That's what it means. What it doesn't mean is that we all sit down and we all think exactly the same thing at all times about every topic that there is. Because then where you end up is just, well, the loudest person wins. Okay? I sit up here and I make a bold statement about something. It can be sports. It can be politics. It can be religion. And because I'm the loudest guy in the room and I've got the microphone and you don't, unity of mine means that you're going to agree with me. No. No. Unity of mine means that we're all pursuing the same goal, not that we're all walking in lockstep with each other. There are those who have chastised 
Christianity because Christianity expects everybody to think exactly the same way at the same time. Well, that's not true, and it never has been true. But we all do worship the same God. We all acknowledge the fact that our salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And on the basis of that, we show sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, and humility of mind in everything that we do. The unity is not all of us dressing the same, talking the same, using the same words, walking in lockstep through life. Why? Because God has put you somewhere. He has given you gifts. He has given you talents. He has given you life experiences. And he expects you to use all that to accomplish his purpose. What is his, what is his purpose? that we be sympathetic, that we show that we're tenderhearted, that we show brotherly love, and that we show humility of mind. That's the unity that he's after. He's not asking for us all to be copies of each other. Not only is that not possible, it's not desirable. It would be a really dull place. Now, what happens, though, when you and I actually do get into a discussion, <clears throat> an argument about some topic? Remember my discussion from five minutes ago? I finally told Van one time, our church is not going to adopt the King James Bible. You just got to get used to it. I did. But you know what? As I said, it was never a question about sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, or humility of mind. It never was. We were just having a disagreement. <laughs> and you know what? That was okay. So, that's the good side of this. He then gives the negative side of this. Here are the things we're supposed to be doing. Now is the list of things we're not supposed to be doing. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Okay? You're on the internet, and somebody says something nasty about you, your friend, your religion, your somebody, and what do you do? I know what you do. You respond in kind. And Peter is telling us, don't do that. Do not return evil for evil. But you don't understand, Kyle. The guy is not being sympathetic to me. Why in the world do I have to be sympathetic to them? Why does Jesus sit on the cross and say, Father, forgive them? Oh, wait. If he can forgive that, who am I to hold the insults that people aim in my direction against them? We are never to respond to evil with evil. Now, there are times when we do have to respond to evil. We have to say, 
that's bad. That's evil. Don't do it. But we are not permitted to do that in an evil way. When people revile us, we do not respond with reviling. If people insult us, we do not respond to, with insulting them. If they insult our mother, we do not insult their mother. We're not allowed to do that. But it gets worse. Not only are we not to respond to evil with evil or reviling with reviling, we're supposed to actually do something. On the contrary, bless them. Come on, that's going a bit too far, don't you think? They are reviling us, and we are to bless them. Why? For this, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Why do we bless them? Because we're just stupid? No, because we have been called to be like Christ, to respond like Christ, and in doing so, we receive the blessing. In a moment, or next week, depending on how fast I talk, we're going to return to the subject of suffering. Remember, we talked about this two weeks ago. You know, you're supposed to submit to the authority of your employer, but what if they're an unjust person? Well, you suffer. And guess what? That's okay. Well, that's not okay to me. Yes, it is. Why? Because we have the example of Christ who suffered on our behalf. If you remember in that lesson, we talked about the problem, the philosophical problem of suffering and the fact that people want to hold that somehow against Christianity if there's a loving God and there's suffering in the world, then obviously God can't stop it. Well, first off, this isn't a Christian problem. Every philosophy, every worldview, every ideology, everything has to somehow explain the suffering because the suffering is real. Unless you're some new age spiritualist something and you just think it's an illusion. It's real. Christianity, on the other hand, tells us that there is redemption through suffering. And we see this in the life of Jesus Christ. But then we're told that we receive a blessing when we give a blessing to those who are reviling us. Why? Because they treated Christ in the same way. Therefore, when we imitate Christ, first off, we draw others to Christ, 
and we demonstrate that we are in fact. We are in fact imitating Christ. Because you see, it's one thing to imitate Christ when things are going well. It's a whole different thing to imitate Christ when things aren't going well. But just an observation. When are people going to draw attention to that? When are they going to say, hmm, there's something different there? More about that in probably next week's lesson. But on the contrary, bless. For those, for to do this, you were called. What does it mean to bless somebody? Um, you know, the old southern way of responding, you know, bless your little heart. You know, whatever it is, bless your little heart. Um, there was an old sentence that I read years ago, a southerner will bless your little heart right up to the moment that they kill you. <laughs> That's the southern way. No, in fact, there may not be anything audible in this at all. Somebody is reviling you. And you are, in fact, tenderhearted. What are you going to want for them? Are you going to want God to zap them? Show of hands. No, don't do it. Because that's what we all want. God, come down with your angels and chop the guy's head off. Isn't that what you... No. We're not supposed to return evil for evil. What we're supposed to do is hope that they respond to the gospel. That's hard. That's hard. Paul is thrown into prison. God opens the doors. He starts to leave. The prison official starts to kill himself because, well, he just messed up in his profession. They're going to kill him, so he might as well beat them to it. And Paul says, eh, don't do that. And leads the prison official and his family to relationship with Jesus Christ. Just between you and me, this prison official just threw me in jail. They probably whipped me a bit, mistreated me, gave me really bad food. You know what? If the Romans are going to kill him, that's not my problem. But that's not the way Paul thought. What Paul wanted, what Jesus wants, is for all to respond to the gospel. To bless someone is to desire that which is good for them. Here's the test. Do not answer this question out loud. Think of the person that you really don't like. Hopefully not somebody in this room. But it could be a politician. It could be a speaker, a writer, somebody you've listened to, and you just really don't like them. It could be your neighbor. How would you respond if they accepted Jesus Christ? Would you be, oh, shoot, they're not going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of looking at this. Do you remember the parable? 
the, the master shows up in the morning to hire workers. You all need work. I promise you a day's wages and off you go. A couple hours into the day, I need some more workers. I go find some more workers. Come on, I'll pay you what it's. And finally, a couple hours left in the day. Come on, I'll give you work. And he lines them up. And what does he do? One day's work, labor, work a pay, one day's pay. They all got paid the same thing. And this group over here is ticked off. Why? We worked longer. But guess what? This group over here needs to feed their family just like that group over there. But it's not talking about, this is not an economic discussion. It's talking about salvation. And guess what? You're 80 years old and you accept Jesus Christ. You're 10 years old and you accept Jesus Christ. Well, I served Christ for a 80 years more than that person did, I should get, no. We are to bless those who are reviling us. We are not to respond in kind. Why? First off, it shows a lack of sympathy, a lack of brotherly kindness, a lack of being tenderhearted, and guess what? It's probably driven by our pride. You know, I know that I'm concerned about what people think about me, but I know some people who are obsessed about thinking about what people think about them. And you know what? What does Stan say? You just can't do anything about it. You just can't. I had one of my employees one time who was talking about me in just random places. I would get phone calls. And I go, you know, there's just nothing I can do about it. I can't. Four, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It is interesting because this is taken from uh, Psalm 34. And I, th I think it's interesting because the Psalm passage, the verse before it says, Oh, come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he goes into the discussion that is covered in 1 Peter. Do you want to live a good life? Do you want to live and see good days? How do you do that? How do you do that? And he gives instructions. He gives instructions on how, well, let him keep his tongue from evil. What does that mean? Don't say stupid stuff. Don't say evil stuff. Don't say wicked stuff. Don't type anything on the internet. Oh. <laughs> Did I really say that? That could be one of my pet topics, but we won't go there. Well, maybe just a little bit. For some reason on the internet, we think we're anonymous and the rules don't apply. 
I can be anybody I want to. I can shout at anybody I want to. I can use any language I want to. Guess what? Don't do it. Just don't do it. But wait a minute. Everybody else, that's, yeah, they are doing it. Don't do it. Do you want to see good days? Let him keep his tongue from evil. The scriptures have a lot to say. Go read the book of Proverbs and just mark all the verses that talk about what you say and the things that you can accomplish for good and the things you can accomplish for evil by the words that you say. Here it's specifically saying, do not let your tongue do evil things. Do not communicate bad stuff with other people. How do we do this? Well, we do it by returning reviling for reviling. That's the easy part. We use it by gossip. We use it by gossiping by giving prayer requests. Have you ever done that before? Don't raise your hand. We should pray for this person. Let me tell you, She's doing this evil thing, that evil thing, this evil thing, that evil thing. We should pray for her. It's gossip. Don't do it. If you want to live a good life, keep your tongue from evil. Let him turn from evil and do good. You know, this is so basic that we as a society have forgotten it totally. Number one, there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil. That's the first observation. Observation number two, who gets to determine what's in the good list and what's in the evil list? And the answer is not the people on the internet. The answer is not celebrities. The answer is not any of that. The answer is God. There's no one good but God. God is the standard. God is the definition. God is the criteria of what is evil and what is good. And here's the easy part. That's almost impossible. What is he telling them? This is pretty simple. Don't do the bad stuff and do the good stuff. How easy is it? I mean, somewhere in some file at home, I've got a letter to Dear Abby, okay? Do you all remember Dear Abby? Okay. Um, It was written from a uh, teenager. My mother is always complaining to me. She wants me to clean my room, uh, do my dishes, do this, do that, do that, do that, that. What should I do? And what does she say? Clean your room, do your dishes, do this, do that, do that, do that. And that was it. And we laugh at that because it's so simple. The scripture says, love your enemy, but I don't want to. Then you're going to have trouble in life. Why? Because God said so. Now, I want you to understand something. We're not going to make it to verse 13, but I'm just going to tell you what it says. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? 
what, 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 what bad's going to happen? Do you know what the next verse says? Bad things are going to happen. But you know what? Are you more interested in pleasing God or are you more interested in pleasing those around you? Let him turn from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Peace, shalom, it's more than just the absence of war. Peace means that I have a relationship with you that's good. Observation number one, let him seek peace. Observation number two, and pursue it. Aren't those the same thing? Seeking peace, pursuing it. Well, seeking peace means that you want it. You think, don't we all want peace? No, we don't. We like being mad at people. We'd never admit to that. But I hold my grudge against you, and guess what? I like my grudge. I like being aware of the fact continually that you offended me 20 years ago. And I'm not going to forget it. Guess what? I am not seeking peace. But having decided that I do want to seek peace, I am to pursue it. I am to do actions that make that a reality. But first you have to desire peace. No. First you have to desire to love life and see good days. Guess what? The lack of peace prevents you from loving life and having good days. Verse 12 is the one that you need to remember. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The eyes of the Lord are on those who do what is right, who do good. And he listens to their prayers. Do you remember the last sentence of last week's lesson? You know, we started off with that part, we all hate wives be subject to your husbands. And then we move to the husbands live, to your, live with your wife in an understanding way. And if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. The eyes of the Lord being on us mean that his favor is being shown to us. The king looks at you and says, well done. Or the king looks this way and says, get out of my way. That's the picture that we see. The eyes of the Lord are on those who are being obedient to him. Now, we have a negative three minutes, but I want to make sure I remind you of something. Years, years ago, I actually taught a lesson in the book of Proverbs about the tongue, okay? Went through all the verses in Proverbs about the tongue. And I said, just to make sure you understand, this is not just an Old Testament thing. 
And I read this verse over here from the New Testament that we're supposed to do this. And somebody said, but that doesn't apply to us because we're under grace. And guess what? We are under grace. Well, why would the eyes of the Lord be on me or not on me if it's all under grace? We are saved by grace. We live by grace. Every moment of our lives, we are in need of the grace of God. And if you think otherwise, let's go back to our discussion about being humble-minded and just start there, okay? But God has created this world in such a way that following after God brings us good things because that's the way God made us. So to say that I'm saved by grace, therefore I can do anything that I want and God won't care, is a misunderstanding of the scripture. But it's also a misunderstanding to think that any of these things are what saves you. We are saved by grace so that we can show sympathy to one another. We are saved by grace so that we can show brotherly love to one another. We are saved by grace so that we can be tenderhearted. We are saved by grace so that we can be humble-minded. And remember the first one that we skipped and came back to. We are saved by grace so that we can have unity of mind. It's all grace. But it's grace that God gives us to do what God would have us to do. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you have shown us. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to be tenderhearted. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.